Thank you so much, Chelsea. His wounds have paid our ransom. Today, may the character of our Lord Jesus Christ be glorified in you and in me. And may you be glorified in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for your word, which reveals your great love for us and your desire to be with us. As we look at your word this morning, speak to our hearts and to our lives, and may we be open to your Spirit's leading. In Jesus' name, amen. We are at a part of our series on the law, actually our series on the stained glass windows, and we're on the third window, the, the window that shows the law. We've had two sermons on the law so far. There's this one and one more to go. We've looked at the law and we discovered that when the law was first given, when the law was given at Sinai, it was not given simply by itself, but it was given bathed in grace. Remember that? It was bathed in grace. The law was never given apart from grace. The second thing we looked at was side A of the law, and that's not side A, the part that refers to God, our obligation to him, and side B, the part that refers to our fellow man and our obligation to our fellow man. We discovered that side A was, was in reality much like an old 45 RPM plastic vinyl record. Do you remember those? And I know I used that illustration last week, but there may be some people who were here that weren't, didn't hear it. They always put the hit that the artist wanted to, you to hear and buy on, the, on side A, because the more they sold of those, the more they would be able to know what was the most popular song of the week. And on side B, they would put a song that they didn't think would quite be good enough, but they needed to put it on that side too. And sometimes the public messed them up because side B became a bigger hit than side A. And now today we simply have iTunes selling MP3 songs by singular numbers, and that's how they're determining things and how they make their money more than anything else. Things haven't changed much. Just the medium has changed. And so we're looking at the law in terms of side A and side B last week and this week, but it's not side A to God and side B to man as we could look at it that way. We're looking at what are the primary functions of the law? What is the law? How do we relate to the law? But before we do that, I want to remind you that the law was given to reveal the very character of God. It is a small statement of that which reveals what God is like. And if you look at each part of that law, not just the one on the left, if you will, if that's the way it was. Actually, it probably would have been on the right in Hebrew. It was the Eastern language. Uh, on, on the one side, that which is about God and that which is about man. If you look at each one of those, you see aspects of God's love and kindness and mercy and justice and God's faithfulness and goodness in all of the law. 
He's faithful in that he is the only God we can worship, so requiring us to worship him and him alone makes sense. He's revealing himself as the only source of life, as the only one who has any life to offer. When you look at, at, at the, the, the law, for instance, says, thou shalt not steal, he is a God who honors and values the, the work that people do, and he values the fact that they place themselves in their work, and he honors that. And so every part of the Ten Commandments is a revelation of who he is. The second thing we, we know is that that law will be used in the judgment. We will be judged by it. And then some people say, well, what about grace then? Where does it fit in? And, but we must remember that side A, as we discovered last week, reminds us that the first function of the law, the first purpose of the law for us as we live our daily lives, is that the law points out our sin and our need of a Savior. That's the first use of the law. It points out our sin and need of a Savior. James chapter, chapter 1 says the, the law is like a mirror that shows the imperfections on our face. Now, I've, I've heard and I've used, I've heard evangelists use that to say the law points out the, the dirt on our face. And, and there's truth in that. But the imperfections it's talking about is not just the dirt on our face. One of the reasons I don't look in the law real, in the mirror real often, not the law, but the mirror real often, is I see that there's more bald spot up here when I look in a mirror. And there's more age spots showing up. And Bill Cosby does a funny thing about getting older, and he, he wonders why the hair moves from certain parts of the body, and now it shows up on the outside of the ear as you get older and all that kind of thing. Young people, you just wait, okay? The law doesn't just reveal when we get food on our face. The law reveals that you know, for some of us, it's painful because we look at our faces and we see, man, I wish I had a smaller nose or I wish my eyebrows were thinner or thicker. There's always something we'd like changed, right? But the mirror shows that we're not perfect. And so side A reminds us that the law teaches us what thou shalt not covet means and shows us that we do covet and when we do we need a savior side B how do we relate to the law after we come to Christ how do we relate to the law as Christians where does this whole thing about obedience come in and unlike the record player in which side A was supposed to be the most important part and side B the lesser part where side A was supposed to be the hit and side B, the tag-along, both sides of the commandment are equally valid and equally important. Both the fact that it points out sin, and I would suggest to you that this is the lesson for today, that while side A, the law points out our sin and need of a Savior, side B, the law reveals God's righteousness it reveals God's righteousness and enables us to become like him. Now, the law itself can't do that. We've got to go a little more into it, but that's the purpose. of It reveals his righteousness and that we are to become like him. 
How, how do we know that? How do we fit that all together? I would suggest to you that the answer is found. The answer is found not in whether we have completely, perfectly obeyed it, and that's where the answer is found, but it's found in another way. I would remind you of a passage of Scripture we looked at last week in Timothy that says, we know that the law is good if someone uses it legitimately or correctly. Now, if the Scripture says the law is good if it uses it legitimately or correctly, it is implying something, is it not? It's implying that it can be used incorrectly. So how do we know if we're using the law correctly or incorrectly? And I think in the New Testament, the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant gives us the answer. And the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant is found primarily in Hebrews, especially chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. We're not going to cover all that. Somebody say, well, what's a covenant, Pastor Gary? It's not a word we use much. It means it's a, it's a pact. It's an agreement between two people of how you're going to work together and how you're going to get along together and how you're going to live together. What part you play, what part the other person plays. On June 3rd, 1973, I stood in a church before a pastor who was going to become my father-in-law in just a few minutes. In the church at Andrews University, Autumn, with all of 75 people there to witness it, which means there were very few people in that church compared to the size. We didn't care how many people were there. Vivian and I were there to be married by her father in front of our family and friends. And we decided to get married there, frankly, because the, we wanted to get married with the pipe organ, and the organist was fantastic, C. Warren Becker. And on that day, I promised to enter into a pact with my wife. She's, she's ill. She's not here today, so quit look, you don't have to look around and find her. Okay? It, it might be a good thing she's not here to hear this. I promised that I would be a good husband. I thought I knew what that meant. On that day, we were married. We'll be celebrating our 40th this coming June. All right? I'm still learning what it means to be married. Am I slow or is anybody else in the same boat who's been married a while? I'm still learning what it means to, to love my wife in ways that, that I didn't even understand back when I first said yes. I, I'm learning that the perfect husband is something that is beyond me. <laughs> and if Vivian were here, she would say a big, loud amen. But that's okay. I don't know too many perfect wives either. And yet, I haven't given up on my marriage because I don't completely understand what a perfect husband's all about. And there are still times I have to turn to my wife and say, Vivian, I'm sorry I blew it. Can you forgive me? But I'm still learning what it means to be married, and I will until either Jesus comes or one of us dies. I, I use that as a point because a covenant
covenant is like a promise in marriage. It's a promise that you are there for one another. And, and the promises of both the Old and New Covenant, are, and the covenant is based on promises made by both God first and man second. And the there are three basic areas in which those promises were made. Three basic facets about the, the Old Covenant. It was made on a promise of sacrifices for sin. It was made on the promise, it was made on the promise of a priest who would mediate between man and God. It was made on the promise, it was made on the promise of obedience. From God's perspective, God says, I'm going to promise you that if you sin, I will provide a sacrifice. And in the Old Covenant, the sacrifices were offered morning and evening and sometimes during the day as people brought their, their sacrifices for their sin. It was based on the promise of a priesthood, an imperfect priesthood who themselves needed sacrifices, who were to stand as intermediaries between man and God when God in his holiness and brightness was in the Shekinah, the most holy place, the Shekinah shown there. And only the high priest could enter once a year. It was based on the promises of obedience. And God said to them, listen, listen, if you, if you will not obey, if you will obey, I will bless you. But if you do not obey, I will curse you. If you obey, I'll take you into the promised land. If you disobey, I will take you from it. And God says, I will fulfill my promises and bless you if you obey. And you remember Israel's response? Israel's response was, everything the Lord says, sign us up. Everything the Lord says, we will do. Everything you've asked us to accomplish, we will fulfill. And with a very short period of time, they broke their promise. Now, there are those who say that the promises to obey and the, and the issue of obedience were old covenant in and of themselves. The obedience is no longer anything we have to worry about because we're New Testament Christians today. Well, if the law is a revelation of God's character, how many of you are willing to do away with God and his character? I doubt there's any hands. How could we possibly do away with that which reveals him? And so what is the difference between the old and the new covenant? If the covenant was based on promises of a sacrifice, promises of priesthood, promises of obedience that dealt with obedience, what is the difference between the old and new? And it's found in our scripture this morning. And if you will turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Page 1006 in the Pew Bible, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be, begin with verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should may be made a footstool for his feet. He goes on. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
And what's interesting is chapter 8 had already, already quoted those verses. But there's something different in chapter 8 I want to point your attention to. In chapter 8, just on a page or two over, page 10.05, it says in verse 6 that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been occasion to look for a second, but he finds fault with them when he says the day is coming. What was wrong with the old covenant was not the law. What was wrong with the old covenant was the people. What was wrong with the old covenant was not the promises. What was wrong with the old, uh, from God's perspective, what was wrong was the people. The reason that we needed a new covenant was that while when God said, I will provide sacrifices to cover sin, those sacrifices had to be repeated. But the old covenant is not based on the sacrifices of lambs and goats. Repeatedly done. The new covenant is based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ done once. There's a huge difference. Israel got caught up in the rites and the ceremonies of doing those things which they had to do in order to, to win God's favor. And they missed the whole point of the entire sacrificial system. And so, the better sacrifice was Jesus. The old covenant was based, it says, on a priesthood. But now the new covenant has a better priest. It's not a human priest. He's human and divine. Make that, don't miss that. Not based on a priest who sins himself and needs a Savior, but based on the sinless Savior who stands at the right hand of God. Not pleading with him, please, please, can't you please save him? But Father, he's accepted my sacrifice. And God says, yes, bring him in. I want you to notice it's based on better promises because the promises are God's and God's promise to give us his spirit to dwell within us. God's promise not just to give us a law that we must follow by, by looking at it and, and seeing what must I do to be saved, how do I follow it, but by writing that law on our heart so that when we do follow it, we aren't even aware of following it. I, I, I want to point out something to you. It's found in chapter 10, verse 14. This is a critical verse in the whole discussion about obedience. For by a single offering, he will perfect for all time. No. He has perfected for all time, those who were sanctified. No. Those who are being sanctified. In this passage, you've got two things that are in different time periods. It says, through his sacrifice, he has perfected. And through his sacrifice, he is sanctifying. 
Now, the word perfected there is, is very interesting. It is the very same word Jesus used when he said, Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word literally means, according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it literally means he has enabled you to stand in God's presence. That's what being perfect means. He has enabled you to stand in God's presence, faultless before his throne. Now, some look at this verse and they say he's talking about justification. There's truth in that. Justification and sanctification are close. Being made right with God and being kept right with God are close. It's also sanctification because in the very next breath, he says, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are becoming obedient and who are allowing, as the next verses show us, because the Spirit bears witness to the fact that we are being sanctified, that God's laws are being written on our hearts and in our lives. I happened to be in a Sabbath school class this morning that was discussing what it means to get ready for Jesus to come, what it means to be ready for Jesus to come, and how do we put that all together. And one member of the class pointed out that when it comes to, to being ready, Jesus pointed out that there, there were those that he said would, would be providing him with water and food and visiting him in prison and, and visiting the sick. And, and they would say, Lord, and this is according to Matthew 25, Lord, when did we do all those things? And he said, I, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. They were fulfilling the law without even recognizing Wait a minute, where does it say in the law that, that you must visit sick people and, and do all those things? There's no Ten Commandment that says that. Yes, there is. You see, most of the Ten Commandments are written in the negative because that's the easiest way to state them. Thou shalt not steal. But there's another way to look at the law, and we can look at the law as the promises of God to his people. You will not steal. We can look at the law as seeing the opposite of the negative. What's the opposite of stealing? It's giving. It's sharing. It's being generous. What's the opposite of killing? It's giving life, either by helping people find God or by making their life more meaningful. And that's why the rich young ruler didn't get it. He said, what must I do to be saved? He said, keep the commandments. Oh, I've done all that. Most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, can honestly say we have never killed anybody, at least in terms of shooting a gun. But most of us in this room have gossiped, if not all of us. Most of us in this room have hurt people so badly that they just wanted to die. And when we do that, right, we need a Savior. But when we act and react to people out of love and we enhance their life without thinking about it, that law has been written in our hearts and we are fulfilling it. The law, according to the new covenant, is not just a list that we put on the wall and say, these I fulfilled because I've kept the rules. Because God's law is not just a list of rules. The law of God are principles by which we live and principles which he places within our hearts by the Spirit. I, I want you to notice it. It's Old, Old Testament and New. 
because the author of Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament. He says, when that law is placed within our hearts, according to chapter 8, verse 10, it says, they shall not teach each other their neighbors, saying, know the Lord, they shall all know me. I will be merciful and remember their sins no more. I will cause them, Ezekiel says, to walk after my statutes and obey my ordinances. A good friend of mine used this illustration some time ago. I've not forgotten it. I don't wake up every morning to look at a list of rules so I can know how I can love my wife that day. Do you? I, I, I don't stop in the middle of the day and say, here are the rules for having a good marriage. I better follow all these. I don't do that. And there are times at night before I go to bed, I think back about maybe some words I said during the day and I have to apologize to her and think about it. Or think about something I should have done and didn't that I have to apologize to her for. I'm glad she's patient and puts up with me. But most of the time in our marriage the kindnesses, the good deeds, etc., do not come out of a have-to that I'm complying with, but a do that I can't help but. I know that's bad English, but you catch the point. If, if the keeping the commandments is about full compliance to the law, we've missed the point, and our lives are going to be miserable. You know, we, we live in a society that has gotten more, fallen more and more in love with laws to try and make life just. And, and there, there, there is that word in legal terms, in terms of the workplace, where we must be in compliance with. And those who have businesses say, how much is it going to cost me to be in compliance with? You know what I mean? And I think too often when we allow the law to become the focus of our lives, we have a compliance attitude towards it. What must I do to be in compliance with? What's it going to cost me? That's not new covenant. That's not living by grace. That's living under old covenant. And it's living under the promises that we make that are like ropes of sand that we cannot fulfill on our own. Because all our promises, by our power and strength, we cannot obey. The truth is, Paul was dead on in, in 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter 2, I think it's verse 18, where he says, it is by beholding we become changed. It's by beholding Jesus we become changed. It's when we look at the law and see not just a, a bunch of rules or a bunch of things we must or cannot do. It's by, by recognizing what is it in that law that reveals the character of God. How do I see God in that? It's that that changes us. We're told that at the end of time, before Jesus comes, that there will be people who keep the commandments of God and have faith in Jesus. To keep the commandments of God means to, to honor them, to revere them, to respect them. But it doesn't mean, what must I do to keep them? It means, 
God is so much a part of who we are that we weren't even aware we were doing it. It's become part of our very nature. And so, think about that stained glass as you come in week to week. I love the fact that the stained glass about the commandments is next to the stained glass about the birth of Jesus, next to the stained glass about the word, Jesus, the Word, and the life, and the stained glass about the cross and the resurrection, and the stained glass about God being with His church throughout history, and the stained glass about three angels and His second coming. There is a tie to all of it, and when we separate out the commandments and make them distinct from those things, we've made them something they are not. We've made them rules to live by and not principles that are transformed and become part of us. God says, I love you so much. I want the best for you. And that's the other part of the commandments we need to remember. He gave them for our happiness. He gave them for us because that's what's best for us. He gave them because when we, those principles are placed within our lives, we have fewer problems and fewer difficulties and fewer, fewer uh, issues with others because God, the, whose character is love, is being lived out. His love is being lived out through us to others that they might see and know the God we know, whom to know is life eternal. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you long to write your law in our hearts. Thank you that you want to transform us into your image. May we behold you through, through our study of your word, through prayer, through, through serving others. May your word become so part of our lives that when we do and live and as we tr deal with others, that that love flows through us to them in such a way that they see your love too. In Jesus' name, amen.